Welcome to the conversation on TYT Network. So um, I'm given to understand that Nancy Pelosi is a master legislator. Uh, and that's why um, in the nine elections that she has led, um, the Democratic Party has won all nine of them and have picked up hundreds of seats in the House. Oh, wait, wait, I'm getting breaking news. That did not happen. Uh, we're gonna tell you her actual uh, win to loss ratio in a second. Uh, but in her loss column is this election where they were supposed to pick up 20 seats and picked up instead zero. In fact, they lost right now, it stands at around 10 or so. Um, so in dealing with this uh, enormous failure, of course, uh, there is talk that progressives should be blamed and leadership has no fault at all. So uh, we're gonna bring in Alex Salmon here. He is writer for the American Prospect and he's gonna break this down for us. So Alex, um, in the nine elections, uh, what's Pelosi's record? Pelosi is uh, sporting a, uh, a five five for nine record, so she's got five net wins and four net losses. Um, but that even skews a little favorably for what her her actual breakdown is. And um, we've seen her uh, preside over two wipeout losses, and and those have actually come in more recent years. And the big victories that she's uh, been a part of have have pretty much come when Republicans have done such a bad job that they. Uh, they basically lose uh, all traction with the electorate. So that's what we saw in, in 2006 and 2008, and then again in, in 2018. So it's certainly not the sort of resume that uh, would make her uh, untouchable as a political strategist. Yeah, in 2006, the Iraq war was an absolute debacle. And, uh, and in 2008, the economy crashed worse than uh, it has ever crashed in our lifetimes until 2020. <laughs> and even with Trump, being the debacle that he was in 2018. So they, for those three elections, all you do was stand still and do absolutely nothing. And you would have picked up dozens and dozens of seats. And that actually should have been the case in 2020 as well. We couldn't even do that. We couldn't even do that in 20, we lost seats. I can't believe that the Democrats lost seats in the House in 2020. So Alex, uh, Clarion called and I imagine in Washington uh, to get rid of Democratic leadership. Chuck Schumer too, I mean, he couldn't pick up Three simple seats in the Senate uh, when we have the worst president in the United States history. Uh, so everybody in Washington is talking about getting rid of leadership, right? Well, you you would think so. You would think there might be a little bit of uh, accountability in the air, but uh, that certainly has not seemed to be the case. And and uh, so far, Chuck Schumer was reappointed to his position, basically with. Uh, no objection from uh, Senate Democrats. And we're now uh, well on our way to seeing all of House leadership reappointed as well. Yeah, so let's talk about that. That vote's coming on Wednesday. Uh, so Speaker, Speaker Pelosi's uh, blowing this election as she has many in the past as we talked about. And their strategy was let's go uh, conservative. Let's go as moderate or as conservative as we can. Sherry Bustos is a massive conservative they put in charge of the DCCC. Uh, as I can personally attest to, but as we can see in in dozens and dozens of um, races across the country, uh, the Democratic Party always picked the more conservative option and actively fought against the more progressive option. In fact, would blacklist anyone. Said if you ever work with progressives, uh, you know, will will is in terms against a incumbent challenger, uh, will ruin your careers forever. So that conservative strategy clearly didn't work out. So um, I imagine then there is a progressive uprising against Nancy Pelosi and the right wing in the Democratic Party has been chastened, right? 
Again, yeah, you might think so, but uh, I think progressives got caught on the back foot a little bit on this one. Um, I, you know, most people would say if if moderates and conservatives come up with the strategy, if they hold all the leadership positions, if they're making all the decisions, uh, they would be to blame for uh, the losses of their fellow moderates. Uh, but of course, actually, the moderate wing came out and said it's progressives' fault that moderates lost these elections. It's progressives' fault that we chose this strategy that they had no power and influence in, in deciding upon. And uh, and so far, all we've heard, uh, all, all I've heard uh, insofar as uh, moderate positions has been Hakeem Jeffries, who himself is a you know fairly right wing Democrat, all things considered, uh, mounting a challenge to Nancy Pelosi, who is very much in the same narrow uh, ideological position on that spectrum. And progressives are looking to be shut out yet again of, of any meaningful leadership position. So it's it's a it's a surprising development, I think, for anyone who who watched this election and saw these results to, to think that. Uh, Business as usual is going to be the thing we're probably going to to go with again. Yeah, Alex, I wish it were surprising, of course. Uh, unfortunately, with the state of Washington, it's not at all surprising. So, um, uh, one thing I'd like to thank the conservative Democrats for admitting accidentally is where Hakeem Jeffries actually stands. So, uh, every once in a while, he and other conservative Democrats will pretend to be progressive and then. They'll hide behind identity politics, they'll hide behind whatever they can. They usually hide behind corporations. But here they've accidentally admitted Hakeem Jeffries would be a right wing challenger to Nancy Pelosi. And if you follow politics at all, you'll know that that's of course true. Because Hakeem Jeffries is the biggest progressive basher in the in the house. He's the guy they send out to try to malign, harass and, and try to beat progressive challengers. Or really any progressives. Um, so the only challenge to Nancy Pelosi will be from the right wing in the Democratic Party and not from the left wing. Uh, so now, uh, look, our audience helped to get a lot of those progressives elected. But now I'm starting to get fed up a little bit. Um, so, you know, I, I did a quizzical thing where I, you know, on social media asked Rashida Tlaib to run, hashtag run Rashida run. Look, I, that's. There are different ways to do things and to create pressure campaigns. It was kind of like a last ditch effort of like, somebody's gotta say something, right? But it doesn't look like any progressives are ever going to challenge Pelosi. I find that stunning. So I'm not, I'm criticizing my own side here. So what are they waiting for? Are they waiting for an invitation? Is Pelosi gonna give them one? Are they ever gonna get permission to challenge Pelosi in Washington? So do you have a sense of what's going on in the progressive wing? Yeah, well, it's interesting too because given all those losses, those wipeout losses from moderates, uh, progressives didn't lose any uh, any elections in uh, two weeks ago. So they're actually they've grown their ranks. They're certainly a larger percentage of the Democratic caucus than they were before. So you'd think that they would have a little more power and a little more courage going into this. I think what's holding them back right now is that 2022, every indication it is not going to be a very favorable cycle, and so we have redistricting coming up. Often the uh, that first midterm election is unfavorable for the party of the president. And so I think a lot of progressives are afraid to even touch that speaker position or the DCCC chair for that for that matter, because the uh, in all likelihood Democrats are gonna sustain some pretty serious losses uh, in the next election cycle. And I don't know if I think that that's a great excuse and, and I think it's worth debating, but that's kind of where some of the timidity is coming from is, is uh, if you look into the future, it's not looking so great and I don't think uh, Progressives who are already being blamed for the current losses that they had nothing to do with don't want to step up to take responsibility for the future losses that uh, that may be on the way. 
Yeah, no, that's cowardice. So here, I'll do it. You give it to me, we won't lose, okay? So obviously, it's rhetorical, but my point is, if you fight and make your case, yes, Democrats, isn't this amazing? Look at this amazing conversation. I'm about to tell the Democrats, you actually can win elections if you make your case. And right now in Washington, they're like, oh, there's no way, man. You're crazy. There's Already we're surrendering 2022. Isn't that amazing? They're the worst, they're the worst. So go fight. If you don't fight, you're never gonna win. And now, again, I'll turn to the progressives. If Listen to Frederick Douglass. Power never concedes anything without a fight. They're not going to voluntarily give up their power. If you want that on behalf of your voters, you have to fight for it. If you're not willing to fight Nancy Pelosi and Hakeem Jeffries and Sherry Bustos, then maybe we picked the wrong people. So let's go, let's go, whatever you wanna call it, grow some courage and fight. Now look, last thing here, Alex, I gotta ask you about, speaking of Sherry Bustos and speaking of the DCCC, for the folks at home, that's the DCCC is the one that runs the house races. So if anyone was at fault here, the primary culprit of course is Bustos. But it's not just about her, it's about the philosophy. So. Yes, all the progressives won and we picked up seats and, and and we did much better than the moderates did. For example, Cara Eastman lost by four but Max in Nebraska, but Max Rose in New York, a very conservative Democrat, lost by 16, right? But even in a purple district, as you point out in your piece, Katie Porter grew her lead, very progressive and did better and won easily, right? Sherry Bustos, in a similar purple district in a different state, and she's a very conservative Democrat. She ran the conservative Democratic strategy, she was ahead of it. So she must have won by even more than Katie Porter, right? Yeah, it's funny, she 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 eked out one of the most narrow victories I think you could hang on to. And it only actually happened because a few days before the election, she sounded the alarm and the House Majority Pact which is run by Robbie Mook of, of Clinton 2016 fame, who's very much another one of these moderate Democrats. They came through with a million dollar ad buy in the last minute there and they really saved her skin. So she was very lucky to survive. And meanwhile, yeah, Katie Porter in a similar district, Orange County actually saw what was really a red wave where a lot of Democrats did, did much worse than we expected. And she won by a considerable margin and and it did, it shows you, it really shows you that that, uh, that there are ways to win. Uh, if you make it about issues, if you do your job, if you exhibit just a, a degree of competence and uh, and then maybe bashing progressives isn't the best sales pitch when it comes to winning these elections. Cuz you know what you're doing, you're bashing your own base. What a preposterously dumb idea. Who in the world could possibly think that that's a good idea? Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Sherry Bustos. And by the way, did you notice the, the lead that we just buried there? The guy who ran the House campaigns was Robbie Mook, the guy who ran Hillary Clinton's campaign. Why, why on God's green earth would you hire that proven loser who lost to Donald Trump to run your campaigns? Oh, it's unbelievable, now I get it, it's a pack. And the pack, the donors were the suckers who gave that clown money. And what did they do? Oh, Look at that, they gave all the money to the conservative Democrats who barely won some elections and lost the rest. Money 
flushed down the toilet again on Robbie Mook and Pelosi and Schumer. But Washington is never, ever, ever going to learn a lesson. And by the way, if we don't fight, we can't even make an issue out of it. Everybody, Alex, super last thing, we're over time. But in Washington, this, this conversation we're having is not happening, right? I mean, there's no one who's saying like, oh, I can't believe that the progressives are not challenging Pelosi. In fact, if they did, they, almost every reporter in town would be outraged, wouldn't they? It's, uh, yeah, it, it is interesting. And, and it's one of these things where I think a lot of people are hoping that Pelosi has said in the past, this will be her last term as speaker, she's 80 years old. Um, and, and a lot of Democratic leadership, you know, the big three are all octogenarians. Jim Clyburn is in his 80s, Denny Hoyer is in his 80s, and Nancy Pelosi is in her 80s. And I think a lot of people are, uh, are willing to wait this out. And I'm not sure that's the best way to, to go about things. I, I'm not sure that we should, should assume that they're just going to step aside uh, just because they're old, and uh, and I and I think you're right. I think that this is a there's there's going to have to be some sort of confrontation here, uh, where progressives make a play for power. And if not, they're just going to be you know uh, relegated to the sidelines yet again. And uh, and I, I'm surprised how little that conversation is happening. And, and I think you you put it exactly right. All right, Washington, frustrating as always. Everybody, check out Alex's piece in the American Prospect. Obviously, he's got excellent information in there. Alex, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Back on the conversation. Um, our next guest is arguably one of the best marketers in the country. Uh, he was the sole creator of the largest GoFundMe campaign in history, the Black Panther Challenge. Uh, he also uh, raised over $2 million on another campaign for rent relief. Um, he uh, was named the Forbes under 30 list for marketing and, mat and advertising uh, and the 2018 Root uh, top 100 list for most influential African Americans. That's a hell of a bio already. So uh, Frederick Joseph, now the author of the new book, The Black Friend, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. I, I greatly appreciate you all having me. I'm a huge fan of the show and everyone's work on here, so. Oh, that's awesome, thank you. Um, all right, so Fred, let's talk about your book, uh, The Black Friend. Uh, I'm already uh, into it on title alone. Uh, <laughs> but what do you mean by it and, and, and what do you address in the book? You know, so the book um, for me was an interesting um, moment in time and an interesting project to work on because it actually came out of a moment of racism. I was on the train heading to the office and um, a white woman who I sat next to, mind you, I'm in like a suit with a coffee, so on and so forth. She got up when I sat next to her, grabbed her purse, um, clutched it, and then moved to another seat. And you know, I, I tweeted something like, hey, we need a book on just how to be a better white person, not, not a book on slavery, not a book on context, just like different situations that happen to black and brown people and what we can do to make the world better for us. And people went crazy for it. They're like, yeah, please write that. Um, so I decided that the best group to write that for would be a group that started as teens, right? Like why wait until people um, are 30, 40, 50 years old? Why not encourage young people to start actually learning about these things earlier and combat that at an earlier age? Okay, that makes a ton of sense. So let me ask you something for the audience that hasn't seen the book. What's the tone that you take? Because there is, 
How is that for an ironic question? What's your tone, young man? Um, okay. <laughs> so there's a school of thought, in all seriousness, there's a school of thought that says, look, I'm not here to answer your questions. Uh, I got my life to live and, um, and that my job is not to represent all black folks in the country, right? And there's another school of thought that says, no, let's patiently explain it to folks. So, you know, that they could, you know, if they're asking, let's educate them uh, to the best of our abilities. So, where do you come out on? You know, I, I think it's a bit of both, right? Um, you know, anyone who follows me online knows that I talk about things on a regular basis, things that happen in society, not just in regards to racism, but in regards to misogyny, um, in regards to homophobia, so on and so forth. And inherently, what I'm doing and talking about these topics is teaching, right? Um, and my tone is often palatable, I suppose, um, not in a problematic way. Um, I'm not aiming to make people feel comfortable, but I want people to feel like they can have a conversation, right? So the, the book takes that same tone where I'm not pointing fingers, um, but I am holding people accountable and trying to not only inform, but build empathy, right? And I, and I think that that's where there's a gap in a lot of our critical theory on various topics is that, Everyone's pointing fingers, thinking that people inherently understand certain things that they're doing. But I'm like, well, you know, realistically, if somebody has a black friend who's like, hey, you can say the N word, who's explaining to that person, like, no, you can't, right? And I'm and I'm gonna tell you why you can't, how this resonates with people who are black that's not that one black friend you have, and give you historical context as well. So all those things combined allow you to make not only better decisions, but informed decisions. Yeah, I'm in the camp of explaining things, partly because I'm a talk show host. That's what I do. I explain things, right? And so um, I don't want to shut down the conversation, which leads to the next question. Um, is it even their fault? I mean, that's kind of a funny question to ask. But so, like, um, when I was a kid, I, I immigrated here and I was eight years old. I didn't speak English. By the time I figured it out in like third, fourth grade, um, uh, the top question that uh, the kids in school would ask me is, uh, do you eat your own family at Thanksgiving? Gobble, 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 okay, because I'm from Turkey, right? And um, after I beat a couple of them up, that stopped completely. Um, <laughs> no, seriously, overall, I don't know if I was too understanding, but I'm like, I get it. I'm from a different country. They don't, they don't understand, I'll explain to them. Turkey does have two different meanings, wildly different meanings in the English language, etc. Right, um, and and they don't know. Is it their fault that they don't know obvious things about black folks in this country? Is it not their fault? How do you deal with that? What's your take on it? Well, I think one experiences are a spectrum, right? So I'll never claim to own the black experience, right? To be the only person who has a black experience, you should solely listen to me. Um, but that being said, you know, I do know that I'm someone who is not only well versed but well educated in that realm. Um, now, to the question of whether it's someone's fault, you know, I, th I think that's interesting because we do live in the information age. But we also live in the disinformation age, right? Um, you know, even looking at the election currently, I, I shared something today where you have certain networks who are saying Trump's still in it, right? Like Trump can still win, and that's inherently emboldening his base to think that there's a reason for them to get out and riot and march, so on and so forth. And in that, as an example, it is and it isn't their fault, right? Because 
you know, the onus is on some of us who have platforms, some of us who have the knowledge to go out and and combat these things, right? And and that's me. I don't expect every person to be that way. Like I don't expect every woman to want to better men. I don't expect every person who's um, you know transgender to want to better people who are cisgender. But for those who take the time to do so, it is important work. Yeah, and Fred, what's your sense of where we are today? Because we were all hoping that things were getting better. Um, you know, there was no magic in Barack Obama being elected. It, racism didn't magically go away, of course, right? And we've been through all that. Um, but it was hard not to feel hopeful that things were getting better. We elected a black man as president of the United States. It's a hell of a thing, right? Uh, and then obviously we had this massive regression in, in the Trump era. But it's not really a regression. It it's, was in a sense they were waiting to come out of the racist closet and Trump gave them permission. Uh, but obviously there were some Obama and Trump voters that you know are in that weird Venn diagram <laughs> where that actually intersected. So what, what's your sense of where we are today? Are you more hopeful, less hopeful uh, than you were six years ago? Um, you know, it's interesting. I, I think that I'm afraid. Um, I don't know if I'm less hopeful or more hopeful. I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely um, terrified because what we have right now, I think, again, in this disinformation moment um, with the advent of the internet, um, you know, over the last uh, few decades, and then from that, the advent of social media, so on and so forth, is people who are not voting or supporting people based on facts. Right, there are plenty of people. Like the reality is, more Black people voted for Trump in this election than they did in the last election. Right, like the only group um, per uh, exit polls, which are not always accurate, but if you take exit polls, the only group that decreased was white men, which doesn't necessarily make sense to me. Um, but that frightens me. Um, so you know, I guess if we're looking at hope, I have far less hope. That I did because I, I think that we're not equipped yet to battle all of the things that are happening at once. It's not just Trump, it is Trumpism, right? This is still Biden will be leading the country in Trump nation. Yeah, I, well, so Trump nation, it turns out, is half the country, and I'm with you. And that's, that's what I wanted to ask you next, which is. Look, in 2016, the people were super sick of the establishment, and Hillary Clinton was a very establishment pick for the Democratic Party, and they were in a populist mood, and understandably so. And and so they made a mistake, in my opinion, and went with Trump. But and they might not have known how bad he was because we we folks in news we. Our number one mistake is assuming how much people know about news and politics. They really know very, very little, the great majority of people, because they're busy leading their lives, right? Um, so I was willing to give him a mulligan on 2016 at some point, right? But 2020, holy cow, 73 million people voted for him. You might not have known about Central Park Five in 2016. But my God, you had to have known the 18 different racist things that Donald Trump said and did by 2020. So I don't know about you, it changed my perception of the country. I honestly didn't know that the country this was this fearful of the others is the politest way of saying it. Racist is one of the less polite way of saying it. 
saying it. What's your sense? Did you know? Because a lot of black folks say, hey, no, what are you talking about? We knew all along, right? And maybe you did, I don't know. But or did it make it feel worse knowing that half the country, 48% of the country really is totally on board for what Trump stands for? I'll be honest with you. In 2016, I knew that he was going to win 110%. I was absolutely sure, but I'm also from New York, right? And I saw the energy around him and the lack of information, as you already said, about him. Now, you know, I'm I'm not only from New York, but I lived a long time in Queens. You know, I'm I'm a New York City guy who knows who Trump is. So 2016 didn't surprise me. But getting 73 million votes in 2020, that surprised me, right? The results in Miami surprised me. You know, these things absolutely um, they've taken me, you know, from left field because I, I, I thought that the country was ailing um, as it always has in terms of bigotry. But I didn't think that someone could fail so miserably um, with COVID-19, um, you know, with the economy, uh, do all the racist things as you mentioned and still garner the second most votes, if I'm not mistaken, in the history of the presidential election, right? I, I, I thought, you know, as people were saying, there would be a blue wave. I, I really did think that he would lose in a landslide because it didn't make any sense. But I think that America, outside of disinformation, we're seeing that people, how, how I've been looking at it, are leaning much more into the reality TV, social media culture that has come along with Donald Trump. People find him entertaining more than they find him frightening. Yeah, well, I find that frightening. <laughs> it turns out we got 73 million zombies that we live next to. And that's a super scary thought to me. So it is what it is, we gotta win him back somehow. And I think you and I, this is a different conversation, but probably agree that it's economic populism that we've gotta focus on to to unite the country against the establishment, honestly. So that we, because they're angry at all the wrong things, and they've misdirected that anger towards black and brown folks who didn't do it. We did, we didn't do it. Right? It was the folks up top, not us. I mean, you're 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 hitting you're hitting the you're hitting a nail in the head. Um, you know, even today I saw that cancel student debt was trending, and a lot of people were combating the narrative, and I'm like. That is just good economics, right? Like in a pandemic right now, it's just, it's always been good economics to cancel student loan debt because that money would trickle right back into the economy um, and, and boost the country. But right now, there are people arguing for the wealthy in their defense as to why we shouldn't cancel student loan debt or why we shouldn't tax them more, so on and so forth. And that's part of the reason why um, this establishment is part of the issue why, you know, candidates like Bernie Sanders, like Elizabeth Warren, like AOC, like Ilhan Omar, um, you know their their candidacy, their their potential to actually lead the country um, and lead a large populace is so deterred all the time because they're not just combating Republicans; they're combating their own party often. Yeah, hundred percent. All right, everybody's got to check out the Black Friend, um, uh, Frederick Joseph. Uh, you're awesome. Thank you for joining us. Great conversation. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me.